Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to come and worship with us. Here at Glendale, we understand full well the importance of the Bible. This is the first Bible that I ever got. I was 18 years old. It was 23 years ago that I first got my own Bible that I ever remember. I was baptized into the Lord 23 years ago. It was February of 1999, and I needed a Bible. And so I went to our local mall in Columbia, Missouri. They had a Christian bookstore inside, and I picked out the coolest Bible I could find. Back then it was green, and it had golden edges. And I liked that a lot. My high school colors were green and gold, and I really liked the green because somebody told me that the Bible was like a sword. And Luke Skywalker was my favorite Jedi, and he had a green lightsaber, and so I wanted a green Bible, and I got one. And since then, I've used it quite a bit, and it's, it's falling apart. I've had to duct tape it together a couple of times. And um, the only part that I haven't put duct tape over, I guess I could now, you can't even see it. It had my name uh, stamped on it also. I really liked it. I never preach out of this Bible anymore because I'm always afraid it's going to fall apart. I've got so many others. This is the NIV 1984 edition, and they don't make that anymore. And so every time I go to a garage sale or a used bookstore, I've got a collection of about 15 of them because I never want to run out. They don't publish it anymore. I like it quite a bit because it's my heart translation. And I bet you have one too. What was the first Bible that you had that you started memorizing? Maybe it was the old King James Version. Hey, that's fine. Maybe it was the new King James Version. Or maybe it was the NIV or the NASB. Some of our younger people, they might have the English Standard Version. There's many. But whatever that Bible is that you first memorize, that's going to be the one that sticks in your heart. And so that's the one from which I like to preach most often, the old 84 NIV. I, I like it a lot. And what I've realized, uh, there's lots of sayings about the Bible. If you have a Bible that's beaten up and worn, that's indicative of a life that's not. But if you have a Bible that's, you know, smooth and perfect and never used, that's indicative of a life that's probably beaten up and worn. I don't know exactly how true that is because sometimes you just get a new Bible because you want to get the new smell and you want to get a new version all the time. And actually, for Christmas this year, I'm hoping that I get an NIV a waterproof Bible. I want to get a waterproof Bible, tearproof Bible, so that if I drop it in the river or if somebody tries to come along and tear it, it won't tear. I want one of those. So if anybody saves up on ammo or if anybody gets, you know, extra food supplies or anything like that, you ought to have a waterproof Bible. And that's what I want. So it's on my Christmas list so Kim can hear it recorded. That's, that's what I want this, this year. And uh, they're really important. Now, the reason I love the Bible so much is this is not just a book that helps you get to heaven. This is a book that helps you live eternal life here and now on earth. It really is. The Word of God is a powerful, powerful instrument, and we must use it for God has given it to us. God has given us great gifts in this world. He has given us reason. By creating us in His image, He's endowed us with rationality, and we can think. We can reason, and because of that, He's able to propositionally communicate His will to us. 
And he does that through his word. And by giving us his word, and by giving us reason, we can take these two magnificent gifts and understand his will. We can understand his truth. We can then, therefore, place our faith in him and receive the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit inside of us. For it's the Holy Spirit who leads us in a daily basis towards Christ-likeness and a never-ending mission to become more like Jesus, do the will of the Father, and spend life everlasting with God Almighty. This is my hope for every single person. And here at Glendale, we are going to focus on the Word. We've been focusing on the Word of God, specifically the book of 2 Timothy. We did 1 Timothy towards the end of 21, and here at the beginning of 22, we've been tackling 2 Timothy. And today we come to the final chapter. Today we will be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and turn open to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And while you're getting there, let me remind you that 2 Timothy is the last letter ever penned by the Apostle Paul. Paul, that great evangelist, that marvelous missionary, that wonderful Christ-like man who beckons others to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. This same Paul who once murdered the very first Christian martyr and went on a murderous rampage, breathing out threats, arresting, killing Christians all over the region until the Lord Jesus knocked him off his high horse and employed him in his divine service. And that's when everything changed. I'm sure that Paul remembered being legally responsible for Stephen's death, in Greek, Stephanos, for Stephanos' death. Paul was there. He sanctioned his death. He held the cloaks while the men stoned him to death, thinking he was doing right. But God turned Paul around And he then devoted his life to finishing the race, to keeping the faith, to fighting the good fight, no longer the bad. And when Paul writes this letter to his protege, Timothy, never forget, Paul's head is nearly on the execution block. Paul is in a jail cell in Rome when he writes this letter. He's writing it to his good protege, Timothy, whom he first met when Timothy was a young man in the city of Lystra, and Paul beckoned him to follow him on his missionary journeys, and he became a true friend of the Apostle Paul, and Paul became a true mentor to him. And you heard lots about the excellent mentor relationship last week from Chris's good sermon. And we know that Paul poured into Timothy, and Timothy looked up to Paul, and Paul, who established the church in Ephesus, handed the reins over to Timothy, and Timothy is the preacher in the church of Ephesus, and Timothy needed some encouragement. And so Paul writes his final letter, and he pours his heart out to his protege. And we're about to read the final chapter. We'll read the first eight verses. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture in awe of God's Word? You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your own Scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. In the presence of God the Father and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, 
and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For there will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You may be seated. Here, the Apostle Paul lays out a glorious charge. In the culmination of the book, everything is probably pointing to this passage of Scripture. Paul is both revving up to his crescendo and he is coming down in a very self-introspective and reflective sense about his own life. For he has to encourage Timothy to preach the word. And that's why he says, in view of God the Father, in the presence of God the Father and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and Jesus will in fact be the one who judges. Don't, don't get it wrong, it's not God the Father who will judge us. According to Acts chapter 17 verse 31, we recognize that God will judge the world by the man he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. And of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we see that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and will receive what is due them for the things they've done in the body, whether good or bad. We will all be judged by Jesus, which is why Paul can say in verse 8, it's the righteous judge, Jesus, who will award him the crown of righteousness. Jesus will judge. Never forget that. God the Father has given all authority to God the Son, and it is Jesus Christ who will be the judge. Now, what's very interesting, of course, is that he's also our advocate. It's nice when the judge is on your side, and it's nice when the judge himself will take the punishment for you. And this is the heart of sound doctrine. And in view of God's appearing, of Christ's appearing and his kingdom, for Paul always lived in the understanding that the second coming was imminent. Perhaps today the Lord will return. So what sort of people ought we to be? We ought to be the sort of people who are always living in expectation of the Lord's return, for his kingdom is now. His kingdom is not just then, it's not just in the future, it is right now. And he reigns starting in our hearts. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, Paul has the ultimate charge for Timothy. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Preach the word. To Timothy, the preacher at the town of Ephesus, oh, this encouragement is necessary. He has to be prepared in season and out of season. And this makes perfect sense for every preacher must be ready to go at a moment's notice. Oh, it's nice when you get a long time to prepare and when you get to craft a perfect homily and develop. You've got to be ready to go at the drop of a hat if you're a minister. But it's not just ministers. 
Don't, don't mishear the apostle through the Holy Spirit here. Even though he's writing to a particular man who is a particular preacher of a particular town in a particular time and place, and therefore every preacher in the world views like, oh man, this is right for me. Yes, it is for all of us though. And I know that because we are also told in Scripture to be prepared, not just the preachers, but all of us are told to be prepared. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we're told to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason that we have the hope we have. We must always be prepared, every single one of us, not just the ministry staff. We must be prepared, always seasoning our conversation with salt, according to Colossians 4. Always prepared, not just the preachers, but oh yes, the preachers. The preachers have a job to do, and that job is to preach. This is so important. In Romans chapter 10, we learn very, very clearly that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth and life you confess and are saved. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then you get to verse 14. But how can they call unless they've heard? And how can, unless they believe? And how can they believe unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless someone is sent to preach? Preaching. Caruso, the Greek word for proclamation of the gospel, is the centerpiece of the Christian endeavor. What we do here at church is very important, and singing praises to the Lord is so beneficial. Communing with Him and with His people is a necessary element. Breaking bread and fellowship has to occur, but we need to focus on the apostles' teaching. We need to preach the word. We need to preach the word. The word is what must be preached, not funny stories. Oh, a funny story might fit in well here or there, but this is not pop psychology fluff, itching ear stuff. That's not what you'll get here at Glendale Christian Church, nor at any Bible-believing church. You will get the word of God on steady dose, for it is the word that must be preached. Think about the emphasis that the Apostle Paul has laid out for his protege Timothy about the word from this great book. From this book alone, the emphasis on the word of God has been clear. For there are no less than 36 references in 2 Timothy to the true gospel. And no fewer than 17 references to false doctrine and the false gospel. Oh, the emphasis on the word is very, very clear. You think back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Hold fast to the pattern of sound teaching. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful people who will also be qualified to teach others. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Correctly handle the word of truth. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's servant must be able to teach the word. Or last week, as Chris brilliantly preached, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, the word. What do we preach on? The word. 
That's the emphasis. And so the question in our life becomes, does the word of God play a primary role in your life? Is the word of God in a place of primacy in your life? Does the word of God trump and transcend every other thing in the, in, in the world to you? The word of God must be more important than the box score. The word of God must be more important than the news ticker. The word of God must be more important than the Dow Jones industrial average. The word of God must be more important even than the world events, than the local events happening and transpiring all around us. The word of God must be our foundation. It must be everything. And if the word of God plays a primary role in your life, then you can do what God has called you to do. For don't ever forget it. God has saved us by his grace through faith, so that we can be equipped to do good works. But how can we do the good works without the Word of God? All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You can't do the good works without the good Word. And if the good word is not primary in your life, what you're going to see is dust, not just on the word of God, but dust on your life and dust on your evangelism. Who will go and make disciples if that person is not filled and fueled with the word of God? It is the daily bread, our daily delight. Everything about it should be our daily diet. The word of God must be daily read. For if there is a day, if there is a week, if there is a month where we think, I don't need the word of God in my life, then we're not doing it right. The word of God must be in us continually. For if you think you've gotten it down so well that the word of God has nothing new for you, you have deluded yourselves. There is always more depth to plumb from the word of God. This I can assure you. And so this question is very important. Does the Word of God play a primary role in your life? I hope that the answer is a resounding yes. I hope that you have daily devotional time. I hope as you've been working on your pattern of spiritual training that the Word of God is very, very important to that. I hope that you have a daily devotion. I hope that you read the Word of God vociferously. I hope that you plan on reading the Word of God through in a year's time. I hope you go to a Sunday school class that marches through the Bible, that talks about the Word of God, and we have them here. I don't know if you've noticed this. Have you, have you noticed that a lot of churches have done away with Sunday school? A lot of churches just don't even do it anymore. Here at Glendale Church, Christian Church, right after the service, you can march down there and you can go to five different Sunday school classes that will give you a steady dose of the Word of God. And we're not giving up on the Word of God. We will never give up on the Word of God. For it is primary in our lives. And Timothy was told to preach the Word. Not fluff, pop psychology, the word of God. Not cultural acquiescence, the word of God. And if we get things other than the word of God, oh, we can do it creatively. I, I do believe in correct thinking about the word of God, but also creative thinking about the word of God. So we might work in Superman or Star Wars or swords or excellent musicals or different things. We might be creative with it, but it will always focus on the word of God. And if not, fire me. Just, just kick me out because I'm not worthy to be the preacher if I don't preach the word. Because there's going to come a day, 
says verses three and four, there's gonna come a day when people no longer put up with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is really, really important. Sound doctrine is important. We've gotta start with the gospel, and the gospel is pretty simple. The gospel message is this. God, the perfect being who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, eternal, necessary, and triune, exists as one being but three divine persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit perfectly live in eternity with wonderful communion and love amongst himself. Out of God's glory, he created everything, and the very best thing God created was human beings in his image, endowing us with rationality, choice, But all of us used that freedom and choice poorly, for we all have followed in the footsteps of Eve and of Adam, and we have sinned. Sin is any time we fail to do God's will, we rebel against him, or we just don't live up to his good standard. And God can't tolerate sin because he's the perfect being. And because God can't tolerate sin because he's the perfect being, and we are finite beings who are fully sinful, we are separated from him. And so the story of the Bible is the story of God pulling his people back to himself. First he shouts to them, then he He burns among them. Then he's carried around in a box. Then he's got a temple built around him. Then God himself comes to earth among us. And now God lives in us. And the way that God lives in us is because when God came to earth to be among us, he did so as Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to earth and donned human flesh. And he lived a perfect and sinless life. And every single one of us, because of our sin, we deserve the infinite punishment for any sin against the infinite God requires infinite punishment. And the only infinite punishment available for us is death, the shedding of our blood and the complete separation of our souls from God. But God doesn't want us separated from him. He wants us with him. And so God the Father sent God the Son to live and to be a sacrifice and to die on the cross on our behalf. And he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God and we traded places with Jesus. He bore our sin and we bear his righteousness. It's a glorious trade and all you have to do to get on this good action is believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead having died on the cross for your sins. And if you do that and you place your faith in Jesus, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and now you're to do all the good works. You are to repent, you're to go to church, you're to get baptized, you're to make disciples, you're to grow in the word, you're to do every good thing he calls you to do. But you don't ever do one good thing to get saved. You do all the good things because you have been saved. This is the gospel. Surrounding the gospel, sound doctrine, the Trinity, the incarnation, the substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, the notion of judgment and justification, sanctification, glorification, the second coming of Christ, the uh, primacy of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, the uh, glory of the church, all sorts of different things are there. And there's going to come a time when people aren't going to put up with it. Instead, what they're going to want to do is surround themselves with people who will spin a good yarn and scratch those itching ears. Tell them exactly what they want to hear. And Paul uses the word mythos. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn their ears aside to myths. And so there's another question. If the word of God is primary in your life, the follow-up question is, do you live by truth or do you live by lies? If the word of God is primary in your life, you will live by truth. You'll live by truth. But if the word of God is not primary in your life, you'll live by lies. And so this is sort of a litmus test to tell if the word of God has the role in your life or not. Do you live by truth or do you live by lies? This is a really, really important question. You might think, it's easy to live by truth. The word of God declares it. It certainly does. But it is even easier to live by lies. There's a great experiment that I love that was replicated by one of our news channels a few years ago. And in this um, 
in this experiment, what they did is they brought somebody in and they asked this person to look at the length of a line up on a graph. And they asked this person to see which line it corresponded with lengthwise, A, B, C, or D. And there were four other lines that you could choose. And the experiment was every other person in the room was a plant and they all said the wrong answer. And so at first, they would ask the guy, now does this line correspond with A, B, C, or D? And it was clearly B. And he said B. But then every other person in the room said C. And he started thinking, what's wrong with me? And then they would flash up another one. And they would start with him again. And he'd say, it's clearly D. And every single person in the room would say, it's A. And, and he started freaking out. He didn't understand why these people were so wrong. And then they flash another line and then they started with someone else. And every single person gave the same wrong answer over and over and over. And by the time you got to the fifth line that showed up, he'd given up and he just started saying whatever the rest of the room started saying. Even though it was very obvious that the line corresponded to a different one, he just said what everybody else said. Because it's easy to live by lies when the liars live amongst us. It's easy. And in this world, there are many, many myths and lies to avoid. Now, there's lots of them to avoid. We can't go through all of them. Here are just some that we must avoid. These are some myths that we must avoid. One myth we must avoid is godless cosmological origins and evolution. This is a lie that is very, very prominent in our world. Now, the myth of godless cosmology is the idea that God didn't create the universe. The universe has just always been here. It's a brute fact. You don't need God to get it going. And the great scientific minds of our day will lie to us and say, God did not create. The world has either always been or it just happened to be. Well, this, is, this is baloney. This is ridiculous. And then the follow-up lie to that is naturalistic evolution. And our children will be taught a steady dose in public schools of godless cosmology and godless evolution. Here's how nature brought about humanity. Billions of years and common ancestry and speciation and survival of the fittest. And that's how we got to where we are today. Lie. That's not how we got to where we are today. It's God's plan and God's design and he made us this way. But... It's easy to live by that lie. It's easy to live by that lie. And so many of us are hard-pressed to stand for the truth because this lie is so prominent. And all of our children and grandchildren are getting these lies on steady dose at public school. All of them. Well, another myth that we need to avoid is a myth of transgenderism or sexual liberation. Here is a lie. Boys can be girls. No, they can't. Boys are boys and girls are girls and God made us biologically one way and that is absolutely it. But we live in a world where we're told, no, you can trade. No, you can't. No, you can't. There are only two genders and you are stuck with the one that you were made. That's it. That's how it is. Now, this is not nice and it's not PC and the world doesn't like it and they might want to burn our church down for the preacher saying this, but the word of God gives no wiggle room. Sexual liberation is ridiculous. The notion of sexual liberation and the idea that, oh, God is actually okay with sexual activity outside the confines of biological male, biological female marriage. No, that's a lie. That's a myth. It's not true. God is not okay with any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage at all, period, full stop. No fooling around before you're married. No dalliances outside of marriage. No homosexuality. None of this. 
None of this is okay. But the world will tell us it's okay. And the world will craft this myth and this lie, and it will convince our children this is all right. And they'll say, oh, this one part of the Bible might not be right. I wonder what other part might not be right. Or all that, all that part about God wanting sexuality to be for both joyous communion of souls intermingling and the procreation of the world. Yeah. It's actually just for pleasure and whatever you want. That's a lie that happens today and it's screwing up a lot of people. Another lie that happens is that you must be good to get to God. Oh, you better be good to get to God because if you're not good, God's not going to like you and you've done a lot of really bad stuff. The devil loves to press this lie just like he loves to press all of them. And so you better clean yourself up before you go to church. No, you don't. You can come to church even if you are a full-blown godless cosmologist, transgendered, homosexual. I don't care. Come to church and hear the truth. That's exactly where I want you to be. You don't have to clean up before you come to Christ. In fact, you can't clean up before you come to Christ. It's a lie. You can't good your way to God. And so anybody who says you've got to be good for God to love you doesn't understand divine love at all. But the word of God explains the truth to us. Here's another myth that has to be avoided. Thinking you're superior because you're Christian. Now, hey, as a Christian, you know the truth. And so it's all right for you to look your nose down on those fools who are stuck in myths and lies. And this is where legalism comes in. Nope, legalism is a lie and there's no room for that. It must be squashed. Stomp on it. You're not better than anybody else. You're just saved by grace just like they could be. So why don't you share the good news with them? You're not better, you're just saved. God views you differently because you now have the righteousness of Christ and other people don't, but don't forget, left to your own devices, we're just as bad as everybody else. It's merely by the God, uh, grace of God that we're saved and it's the same grace that's available to them. So let's start sharing the truth instead of looking our nose down at people. And there's another lie, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. This is a myth. Now, some people like to falsely attribute this to St. Francis of Assisi, but he never actually said that. He never actually said that. Uh, he, he said something that came kind of close. He said that you ought to preach with your deeds, but he never said, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. That's completely ridiculous. You understand why that's ridiculous, right? Because the word of God is propositional language. It's linguistic. God speaks. God writes. God communicates. That is how God explains the truth. You don't come to Christ just by a feeling. It's by truth being preached and declared. That is the truth. And if you think you can win somebody to Christ just by loving on them and being real nice, you don't understand the gospel. But if you think you can win somebody to Christ just by beating them over the head with the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. Because it also requires that it be done with gentleness and respect and love. You have to have the good deeds to accompany the faith, but if you can't explain the faith, they don't know what to believe. There are lots of good people out there. That's actually a myth. There's no good people out there. But there's lots of people who think they're good. No, no. Preach the gospel if necessary. Use words. No, no. Preach the gospel with words and accompany it with deeds. These, these are myths that we need to avoid. They are major, major myths we need to avoid. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. And I believe that we can. By standing on the word of God, we can discharge the duties of our ministry. Now look, you, we might not all be the preacher or we might not all be on staff, 
But you know what? We all have a ministry. We are all called to do the good works of ministry. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. All God's people are equipped to do the good work of ministry. It is a team effort, and there's a lot of reasons that people don't follow through on their ministry. Now, when Paul told Timothy that he needs to preach the word, he needs to correct and rebuke and encourage with great gentle patience and instruction, lots of us don't want to do that because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work and you have to be founded on the word of God. And sometimes it's just too much. We got people who are like, I, I, don't want to do, I don't want to put the work in to get that. I understand that. But there's another reason that a lot of us fail to do the work of an evangelist. We fail to discharge the duties of our ministry, and it's because we're afraid. We are timid. In a world filled with lies, it's very easy to be timid. But never forget, the whole point of this series is to fan into flame the gift of God because it's the Holy Spirit who gives us never timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline. That's what the Holy Spirit gives us. And if we're banking on him, we don't need to be afraid. And we can share the truth with great proclamation. There's coming a time when people don't want to hear the truth. Why is it that there are a lot of churches that have a lot more people, and yet they don't preach more gospel? It's because people have itchy ears, and they want to hear what their desires are. They want to hear that the sin they're in is okay, and it's not. They want to hear that the truth can be twisted. It can't. They want to hear that there are many ways. I mean, there aren't. There's only one way to God. It's Jesus. That's it. And so, we might not ever be the biggest, but we will be the most powerful in the Word of God and in the power of the Spirit. And we will boldly, never timidly, stand forward in power, love, and self-discipline. And we need to. We need to. Because... We never know how long we've got. We never know how long we've got. I don't know when my end is. Now, there are some people in the world who know their end is coming. There are some people in the world right now who are fighting invading forces right now, and they know the end is near for them. There are even presidents of certain countries who think, man, you might not ever hear a live address from me again because they're coming after me. That's happening in the world right now. And there are people in Ukraine who know that their end might be near. We don't always know when our end is near, but we need to live not just in the expectation of growing, we also need to live in the expectation of transition. Here's what I mean. When we focus on spiritual training, on this excellent idea that Chris generated so long ago, and I realized, man, this is such a good idea, we got to roll it out church-wide, and it became the foundation of our push for 2 Timothy, and you heard Chris preaching about it last week, and you've heard me preaching about it before, growing in spiritual training plans and actual demonstrable spiritual growth, we can't just focus on future, like, ooh, I want to get stronger in the Lord. Ooh, I want to get stronger in the Word of God. Ooh, I want to get trimmed down in my sinfulness. Ooh, I want to get better in this. We also have to live not just growing, but we have to start living with the end in mind. We have to start living with legacy in mind. For what are we doing for our children? What are we doing for our grandchildren? What are we doing for the next generation here at Glendale and in the region? And we need to ask ourselves this question. If your end was near, could you say you've finished well? I want to be able to say that I finished well. 
I don't want to just think about what will be written on my gravestone, for I really won't care at that point. I'll be with God and it will be all good. Some people like to think about that a lot. I've got a good friend who says, all I want on my gravestone is the enemy rejoiced the day he left the battlefield. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I like that. I like that a lot. I want to think about what I'm going to say right before I go. What am I going to say right before I go? Now, I don't know when I'm going to go. I don't know when. And no, none of us do. None of us do. But I want us all to be able to say, yeah, I finished well. So look, I'm still a young man. I'm just 41. I'm growing. I've got lots more growth to do. But I'm already starting to look with an eye back because I want my daughters and my son to grow in the Lord. And I want my grandchildren to see my example. And so I better start keeping my Bible on the table more often. I don't because I'm afraid the dog will eat it and I'm afraid the boy will throw it. And, and he, he does turn 10 today. I'm very excited about that. Clark is double digits. And, you know, he grows and he develops. And there will come a point where I can leave a cup of water on the table and not worry that he's going to splash it over on purpose with a joyful glee on his face. He's not evil. He's just rotten, as we all are. And, and he's ornery. I know that. And there, there will be a day where I can leave my Bible open on the table and not worry. Today is not that day. I close my Bible. I put it away. Make sure that nobody can get it because the dog's going to get it. The boy's going to get it. Something's going to happen. I need to start leaving it out on the table. That's why I need a tear-proof, waterproof Bible. Because I need my kids and my grandkids to see that this is the most important thing in my life. Just like I can look at my father-in-law and every single morning I wake up, he's already drinking his coffee, reading his Bible when I'm staying over at his house. Every time we go and visit, I see his cover-to-cover notes over here because he's getting ready every single day. I need to give that same example to my children and to my grandchildren, and I need to be able to say what the Apostle Paul says. And notice what he says starting in verse 6. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. And this is what he says in verse 7. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who've longed for his appearing. Paul finished well, and he knew that the end was near. Paul knew his life was like a drink offering. And the drink offering is something that's very, very important in Scripture. Now, all the way back when Jacob first gave the first drink offering back in the book of Genesis, it was one of the offerings made unto the Lord. And this is continued both in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus, a drink offering that can be made. It's not just grain and not just animal sacrifice that's had. It's oftentimes a drink offering that is also poured. But in the Roman world, there was also a non-godly drink offering. For at the end of almost every single Roman meal, they would take the last cup of wine and they would dump it out in honor of the gods. Paul, who is in a Roman jail cell, knows full well that the libation, his blood, is going to be poured out fully. The only reason that he can say with full confidence the end is near is because the death sentence has already been issued. It just hasn't been carried out yet. Paul is about to be executed. He doesn't know exactly how long he has, but he will never leave this jail cell. He's dying. He will be killed. He will be martyred. And I can imagine that Paul, having spent his entire adult life seeking to do the will of God, but not always doing it right, had a lot to think through. He's being poured out like a drink offering. That's really, really splendid. But... 
he's also getting ready for that crown. He's getting ready for that crown. And he knows that in a race, all the competitors run in such a way as to win the prize, but only one's going to get there. In fact, Paul will use the race analogy a number of times. And this is used in the book of Hebrews. This is used in the book of Philippians. It's used in the book of 1 Corinthians over and over and over again. And Paul will say, now the competitors in the games do it to get a crown. A crown. The Greek word for crown is stephanos. And they're doing it to get a stephanos. That will not endure. But as First Peter tells us, we do it to get a crown that will endure. We are looking for a crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge, Jesus, will award to us if we finish well. I need us to fight the good fight. I need to fight the good fight. There's lots of fights that we can fight. I don't want to fight the useless fight. I want to fight the good fight. And that's what we have to do. Fight the good fight over and over and over again. Pugilistically, be ready to throw hands at the enemy and at the lies all around us. To run with perseverance the race marked out before us. To work hard and labor. To strain and strive. To fight the good fight. To finish the race. To keep the faith. Paul kept the faith. And Paul finished the race. And Paul fought that good fight. And he was going to get the crown of righteousness. Not just a crown. And don't get confused. We're not laboring to get a crown of reward. It's not just the reward. For in fact, we recognize that in Revelation chapter 5, it's described as all those around the throne cast their crowns on the floor before the throne of the king. It's not something that we want, that we can parade and say, look how good I am. It's not that. It's not that at all. It's the culmination of righteousness. It's the crown of righteousness. It's not the crown of reward. It's not the crown of good. It's not the crown of ruby and onyx and carnelian and jasper and gold that we can parade and let everybody know how good we are in the Lord. No, it's the culmination of our righteousness. For the righteous work that has begun in us through our justification and is continuing in us through our sanctification will be completed in us when we give our last breath or when he comes back and we leave this mortal body and we spend everlasting time with Christ Almighty and then we receive our resurrection body, our crown of righteousness that can keep up with the redeemed soul that we are. That's what we're looking for. And that's the crown I want. That's the crown I want so badly. And I want to finish that race. I want to fight that good fight and I want to keep the faith. But it's hard because there are sins that easily entangle that trip us up. There are people and enemies. There are forces that will fight against us at every turn, which is why the Bible tells us to stand firm. Stand firm then. And don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Stand with your brothers and be courageous and fight together. It's never on your own. Fight together the good fight. Finish well. Keep the faith. For the world will give us lies. The world will give us myths. And it will tell us we don't need to finish well. We must. We must finish well. And so I can imagine the Apostle Paul, that aged man, getting ready to be executed thinking about the Stephanos that he will receive 
while at the same time thinking about the Stephanos that he murdered all those years ago. Ironic and glorious that the word for crown is also the name of the first Christian martyr who died at Paul's hands. And now he's ready to receive his Stephanos and he will be executed in similar fashion. So with all this in mind, here's what I want you to do this week. It's very particular. This week, I want you to read 2 Timothy chapter 4, four times. Before next Sunday, read chapter 4, four times. That's what I want you to do. And then I want you to contemplate. I want you to think really, really hard about the role of the word in your life. I want you to think about the role of the word of God in your life. Contemplate about it. Is this really the primary thing in my life? For if so, you'll live by truth, not by lies. If so, you'll finish well. You won't stumble. You won't give up the fight. You won't give up the faith. And then I want you to pray. And I want you to pray very specifically for wisdom. For James 1.5 tells us that God likes to give wisdom. So I want you to pray for wisdom and discernment to turn from lies. Because they're ubiquitous. They are all around us. I want you to pray for divine wisdom and discernment to turn away from lies and to stay fixed on the truth. And finally, I want you to fan the flame of faith so you can finish well. What I mean by fan the flame, I want you to get the fire of your faith going so hot and so gloriously that it can stoke your life for as long as you've got left. Some of you may have many, many decades. Some of you may have many, many years. And some of us, the end might be tomorrow. We never know. But I want us to fan the flame. And by that, I mean I want you to focus on your spiritual training plans and grow in Christ-likeness in demonstrable ways so that you can say, I finished well. I fought the fight. I finished that race. I kept the faith. And when you hand that baton off to the next man, next woman, to continue that race after you, you can do so with full confidence. Would you stand with me as we pray?